Every day we hoistle in at Pilots and Pitards Podcast. Welcome to the Pilots and Pitards Podcast. This is the podcast with nothing much ado about aircrafts, but potentially everything to do with the first episode of a filmic series. If you enjoyed today's ad-free entertainment, then you owe us. We could stack never-ending crooked ads. We could create sob stories as to why we need your money, but we don't. Repay your debt by leaving us an iTunes review, telling someone else about our podcast, or listening to more episodes. Join us today as we cast judgment and determine if the rapture magical realist leftovers will be hoist or not hoist. That is the question. I'm Jimbo, the anti-millennial, non-conforming, existentialist, pilot, cynical critic, and Kenny of the podcast. We have a special guest, Crazy Carl. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk about The Leftovers. I've loved this show for a long time, and it's excited to be on the podcast to talk about it. And we are going to keep this as a, f- a full episode. We will start off with background, then we will jump into a very brief, spoiler-free part one. We will have part two, part three, everything, one podcast released today. As Crazy Carl said, he loves this show. Yeah, I found out about this show following Damon Lindelof's career for a little while. I was obsessed with Lost in high school. I've never experienced a show like that to this day. It's one of my favorites. So whatever he or J.J. Abrams were working on, I always kind of followed. When Damon uh, Lindelof linked up with HBO for Leftovers, I just immediately got attracted to the material. I didn't know much about the book by Tom Peretta, but when I uh, heard about the show, I immediately was going to be there. Yeah, so just a little more background. It is based off a 2011 book with the same title by Tom Perota. And season one covers the novel. And as already mentioned, uh, he is a co-creator with Damon Lindelof. Two-sentence summary, we have 2% of Earth's population disappears. How will alcoholic pretty boy police chief Kevin Garvey and his family respond? Stay tuned to find out if you should give a steaming pile of crap. So we're going to start off with high points. The show came out in 2014. It's been around for five years. You've had plenty of time to avoid spoilers. So we will very briefly give you some quality of this show to give you an idea of whether you should watch it or not. And I'm going to just start off saying I mentioned the Garvey the Garvey family. And I think the Garvey family's arc is a high point. If you want to see a show about a, a struggling family, this is a pretty good one. One of my biggest high points, too, after thinking about struggle, was looking at the patriarch, Kevin Garvey. He, he deals with multiple versions of reality in this pilot. Sometimes his mind is playing tricks on him or he's asking other characters information and he's just not really sure what to believe in. I like the use of flashbacks as well. We mentioned a a, a rapture-ish show. There's a... They don't explicitly ever prove that it's a rapture, but it's definitely hinted at. And that kind of leads into we have a couple different cults that that Crazy Carl liked as well. So so what's up with these cults? <laughs> the cults kind of come out right after the sudden departure. You're absolutely right. They never call it the rapture. You know, they steer clear of like the biblical implications outright with the Bible. But I think the characters end up calling it the sudden departure. But in America, it seems like there's a lot of lawlessness and godlessness. The cult of mania has taken over. You get the Holy Wayne tribe. Now, his cult deals with money and a lot of secretism. There's like a young Asian-American woman fetish thing going on there. The other cult 
is the guilty remnant. Now, these are people based in Mapleton. That cult seems to attract people who are no longer able to hold on to reality. They think that nothing really matters or that the people who are trying to move on and forget are foolish and they're wasting their breath for even entertaining the idea that anything could be as important as the sudden departure. So one of my my low point that I was a little bit confused on, I, I don't think it's a, a huge low point, but as a viewer, I'm not positive what the main conflict is of the show at the end of the pilot. That does affect my rewatch. What did you think? I mean, so Car- so Crazy Carl has seen this this pilot multiple times. What do you think about maybe? I absolutely understand where you're coming from because it opens up with the sudden departure and you're seeing how people are immediately affected. But then it ends where we're kind of intimately connected with Kevin Garvey. So you're not sure if you should be focusing on his mental health and where that's going. Or again, how the people of Mapleton are kind of finding a way to put their society back together after it's been ripped apart. So that, I mean, that kind of wraps up my spoiler free. Crazy Carl, you have anything else to add? No, I'm, I'm totally fine. All right. So we are going to go into our MVP and then we're going to judge this show and then we will move on to part two. So for any new listeners, the MVP is the most valuable part of the pilot. It could be anything on or off screen. And my MVP is there is a ton of thought provoking themes. We could make an entire podcast just about this pilot episode. There is a lot to talk about, and there's a lot of interesting scenes that are tying to huge themes. And we won't get to all of them, but we will hopefully get the, you know, the most interesting ones at least. But yeah, a lot to think about. A little bit more specifically, my favorite MVP moment, I guess, was the burial of the dog in Kevin Garvey, the chief's trunk. You could tell that this is a domesticated dog because he has like a collar on. But the dog is, you know, killed. When the teenagers, one of them, one of them being his daughter, when she, she and her friends find the dog, they take it to like a field maybe or like a mountain and they bury it. I just thought the for a show that has so much somber tones, the fact that you had a burial scene and people kind of giving closure to some life lost was really powerful, especially it being an animal. The show title is Leftovers, and so people actually disappeared with no bodies. So there's definitely a connection with the fact that they can have a proper like a proper goodbye with with a dog's body. Absolutely. I mean, the burial process I would argue in a lot of cultures is huge in terms of closure. That's why a lot of times parents and loved ones will hold out hope until that body is found and or not found because again, it's an a tangible evidence that our loved ones were here. And in this show, there is no evidence at all. Uh, like you said, they pretty much vanished with no trace of evidence. All right, so that's going to wrap up our spoiler-free. If you must watch this pilot before hearing the rest, pause and go watch and come back. It's on HBO, so hopefully you have an HBO account as well. So now we're going to move into the moment before the moment we've all been waiting for. Am I going to continue watching The Leftovers? Is Crazy Carl going to rewatch this another five or ten times? And uh, I'm on the fence. Um, I do think it's a spoiler. I do think it's a very good pilot, but I don't know if I care enough. I'm, I'm going to let Mrs. Nomalous kind of decide. If she wants to watch the show, I'll keep watching it. If she doesn't, I think I have better stuff to watch. Uh, I tend to agree. I, I think the show has rewatchability. Uh, I didn't see the pilot for a while until being asked to join the podcast. So it's not something I would watch every summer. Uh, there's not a lot of fun in the uh, series. But it, again, back to your point, there's a lot of thought-provoking 
themes and ideas. And I love shows that can, that you just sit with them for a while, uh, even weeks after you're thinking about why these characters are making these decisions. So I would rewatch it as new people I'm joining or meeting or dating or whatever else. If they haven't seen it, I would enjoy the rewatch for that. But on my own, I probably wouldn't to this. I'd go back to Lost. Yeah, I w- and I would say as like a pilot episode, this this actual pilot episode has huge re- rewatchability. And when we get into the spoilers, we we can maybe talk about it's not so much like a cliffhanger ending, but the ending definitely brings your attention to things that you probably overlooked on the first view. So as a pilot, it definitely has some rewatchability. So now we are going to move into the moment we've all been waiting for. For any new listeners, this is to hoist or not to hoist. And that is our question. If we hoist something, that means it is a bad pilot. If we not hoist, that means it's at least good enough. I think Crazy Carl will be happy to know that I am not hoisting this pilot. Yes, that makes me very excited. I love it. So it will absolutely be a not hoist for me. I think it's one of the more special HBOs. And of course, it came out around the same time as Game of Thrones, which took over everything. But I hope that in years to come, it will find its uh, its its core fandoms. We talked about kind of Game of Thrones relying on nudity, more so with with women than men. So our listeners that care about such things, I think Drew will be happy to know there was one underwater penis in the pilot episode and no boobs. So if, if you're keeping track, there's a lot of male nudity and not so much female nudity. So that's that's uh, that, that's respectable and nice to see. That's something I've actually become aware of in the past year and a half where a lot of people and viewers, and, and rightfully so, they will gauge how appropriate – uh, skin and nudity is used and I've, I've heard about that where a lot of showrunners will try to have a balance where yeah penises are shown just as much as a, a boob would or would not be so I, I'm thumbs up on the and we kind of talked about uh, with Game of Thrones not to get too much about that but we thought that that was like the writers not showing confidence in their story that they had to rely on like Skinamax type tactics. And so the leftovers doesn't rely on any Cinemax type tactics to draw on its, its uh, potential viewers. I do think the sex in the pilot, especially is a little bit more natural. I mentioned to you before, I thought the teenagers were a little, you know, flat as far as the writing, but you had the one friend moaning and, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, even to the a flashback scene with Kevin, where he mentions where he was the moment of the sudden departure. Uh, and you, you flash back to a scene where he's making love to a woman, uh, in a hotel room. So I thought that was still tastefully done. Yeah, definitely. They're definitely using sex in there. So let's let's actually place this this pilot episode. And since Carlton is not quite up to date, he hasn't seen all seventy two or three episodes. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna stick it in new twenty four. And uh, Drew, if you have a problem with that, too bad. This is a, a solid pilot. It's not as good as our top twenty, but it's a respectable twenty four. Coming in above the good place and below Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And now we're going to give our Patardar. This is going to be recommendations based off today's viewing and conversation. Okay, so for Patardar, I have have a few things. There's a TED Radio Hour podcast episode called Moving Forward that is very relatable with dealing with grief, which we are going to get into a little bit. And then there's another podcast episode I recently watched or recently listened to. This American Life, and it's uh, Random Acts of History, 
And so it it deals with if you're watching this show or the people in the show, like there's something that happens, a huge event in history for them and kind of the impacts of that. So these uh, both of those podcast episodes are worth listening to and they're kind of relevant to the themes. We have to give a shout out to Lost. And I think we should give a shout out to Inception as well as far as this like multiple realities. We do have a character that's questioning whether they're dreaming. That's, I mean, directly related to Inception. I mean, I'm a huge Christopher Nolan fan, so I will always give a shout out to him. Inception is one of my favorite movies in the last 15 years. And you're absolutely right. Whenever there's dreams or some kind of transient nature to reality, it just really... I think impresses upon the viewer to think what would they do in a situation where they weren't sure if what they were seeing or experiencing was real. And then in this show with a sudden departure where I'm sure there were probably skeptics even in that world. Oh, they ran away or whatnot. It's just hard to trust, you know, yourself. There, you know, that could be a philosophy podcast episode all in itself, but we'll save that for another time. Another day, we're going to move into part two. Part two is our filmic analysis and interpretation of the pilot episode. And as always, we're going to start off with our Crabman Award. For any new listeners, the Crabman Award goes to a character with a small role, but that gives large contributions to the pilot. I have one that I think is going to win, but so I'm I'm going to give Crazy Carl a chance. My Crabman Award would go to Meg's fiance. Uh, we didn't really talk about Meg too much yet, but she's another character who really stands out in this pilot. And not to give too much away, she plays a maid. Oh, sorry, uh, listeners. The spoilers are flowing like wine now. Oh, if, I meant yeah. series spoilers. Oh, go, but, go for it. No, I mean, Meg plays a large role in the future. She actually becomes the, the main villain Ooh. over time. Her wow. her arc, that's why I thought your comments about her and tied to the stranger, she really descends into wow. mania. I think she takes the cult of Guilty Remnant and uses that as a platform. Uh, and it's, it's almost I, I akin to like, the Joker getting going to a place where it's like you shouldn't be but he almost usurps the power of that of the guilty remnant in the beginning of the series the guilty remnant is based in mapleton by the time meg takes it over they move and she takes the cult to a more darker place where there's you know violence and it just goes a lot uh darker i like that she uses that as a vehicle we we are in the literary analysis Uh, so tom is kevin's son and he's picks up the book, The Stranger. And so I made this connection. I said, Liv Tyler's character is The Stranger and she's Meg. Because she seemed to have like an a, a absurdist point of view. The fact that she easily accepts the meaningless of life and the meaningless of like trying to figure out a purpose in life. And so, wow, those spoilers are awesome. And it makes me, I would be more interested in watching just, just to see how much of a psychopath Liv or uh, what Meg really is. Yeah, I, I, when I mentioned to you before following the show, I honestly hope you kept it up just for that. I think you would find Meg's arc one of the better ones in TV. She really becomes someone you hate and you don't understand. And then, I won't give this away, but in the third season, you find out what exactly happened to her Ooh. the day of October 14th. And it kind of makes sense. I'll just say that. It kind of makes sense. All right. So one to two sentences. Sell us on Meg's fiance. This is the guy who wants so badly to get back to normalcy and and what reality is. He's planning a wedding for his wife. He's doing all the good husband-like things. He's singing Al Green to her. 
but it just doesn't work. But I thought his uh, his valiant effort was uh, was worth a nomination. This guy is interesting. I definitely don't like him. You're not supposed to like him, but this this guy is is so clueless on what's going on. Absolute optimistic optimist. That's, he wants that, to be happy. That's a thing in this show. A lot of these characters want to be happy. They just don't know how to find their way back. Well, like my mother always said, want in one hand and shit in the other one. And when one fills up, you, you come back. There you go. I mean, <laughs> I think he does get what he deserves. Uh, I feel badly saying that. But, you know, he ends up and the pilot alone. And I think that naivety comes back to him, especially that he is an adult. And that's another, again, key part of the show is being responsible for the situations and predicaments that you find yourselves in, whether you think they're real or, war- uh, or warranted or not. So I'm going to have to try and convince Crazy Carl then because he has a strong crab man here. So I'm saying Gary Busey, he's, <laughs> he's not in the pilot, but they reference the actor being killed. And I mean, we all love gary Busey, and so that that was just a, a really interesting shot out, out of all the famous actors to choose from why gary Busey, and, and we all know why so I, I feel like he had extremely small role in the pilot but as far as just kind of funny and giving some huge contributions to my viewing pleasure so crazy carl did we sway you uh, I, I'd like you to elaborate. Why do we all know that Gary Busey would be the celebrity to to go? And again, he wasn't killed. They were they were they're just gone. Uh, but I think J Lo was mentioned. The Pope. Why why did Gary Busey stand out to you? I had to actually Google him because I was like I didn't see him in the pilot. Gary Busey has been in trouble with the law a few times. He has a very famous mugshot picture, and he's he's a really kooky guy. So I think like it's funny that they chose like obviously they could have chose Bruce Willis they could have chose like Tom Cruise Will Smith I mean there's like a million yeah. famous actors good actors he's I'm not I don't even know if he's that good of an actor like his movies aren't that good I don't know much about <laughs> Gary Busey in the public you know opinion I do know uh, the iconic mugshots and and just the he's not maybe well kept over the years but again I think his inclusion in that memoriam was meant to show that this was kind of random. It wasn't like people who were holier than thou or people who were special. It was just everyone. And yeah, everyone was kind of a game for being taken during the sudden departure. Yeah, so I I have a uh, the Google images for Gary Busey up. It's I'm going to add this to the Patardar. Click on the link. It's, it's worth lo- looking at. If you don't know who Gary Busey is. I can confirm it is definitely worth a look. Should we just flip a coin? How are we going to determine? We only give out one Crabman Award. I think you convinced me. Okay. I think Gary Busey deserves his moment in the light. He definitely is a contributing factor to the pilot. So, yeah, he deserves it. He can have it. I'm going to take that because, you know, Meg's, Meg's fiance is kind of in there a lot. And he is contributing, but he's, he's no Gary Busey and he knows it. So, our Crabman Award is going out to Gary Busey. All right, Hoisters, and so now we are going to jump into straight-up literary analysis. I know we've already been playing in the literary analysis. Carl's going to dive back into versions of reality, especially around Kevin Garvey. Uh, Yeah, thinking about Kevin again and the versions of reality, I, I find it to be kind of fascinating how he goes through the episode. Him being the chief of police and wearing that uniform, it matters. It's supposed to matter 
that's huge in character development, what they wear and how they present themselves. But the fact that he's going through this episode is supposed to be enacting a lot of control and agency, and he's usually kind of clueless. He doesn't know that his daughter's obviously going to go party. He's not really sure where to go, how to go about getting this town corralled. He clearly knows the guilty remnant are a threat, but he's also completely lost within his own skin. So that makes it, I think, hard for him to enact any real change as a leader. Yeah, I mean, he's in uniform drinking and driving. This guy, this guy's life is a mess, as, yeah. as is most of the characters that we meet on the show. And we reference his dreams. There's at least a couple times where he's definitely dreaming. He has at least two like flashbacks, like daydreams. This guy, like who knows what's going to happen with this guy. He completely is kind of bent out of shape to the point where it's like the classic alcoholism bit where the bartender says, hey, you sure you want another one? And he's only drinking like bottled beer. When the bartender addresses him as chief and not Kevin, it just shows how much responsibility he has on him. But everyone can kind of see that he's losing his edge or losing his control. The mayor sees it. The woman who he expects to take the dead dog back, she she mistakes him for his father, who has already lost his mind and, and lost his position as the chief. So you get that this weight of... So I just loved it. I love characters who uh, who don't have all the way... All the control. And then a really interesting thing about the Garvey family is they didn't lose anyone in their immediate families. The, the pilot is set up for us to assume that the wife disappeared. She didn't. She's one of the guilty remnants. And so at the end, that's what really makes this pilot worth a rewatch because you can go back and see some of the interactions between Kevin and his wife. And you can see his his children are not separated because of the wife leaving. And obviously, like, we get the clues that he was cheating or – yeah, there, there's definitely a clue that he is not – a faithful husband that he was cheating on his wife when people disappeared. I guess it's implied that the person he was sleeping with probably disappeared. Uh, yeah, that's something that we learn as well, that in the midst of him making, you know, having intercourse, she just vanishes. Uh, and it, I'm sure that kind of surprised him. And again, I just thought about that being a callback to the teenager burying the dog, saying that the dogs who watch someone disappear are not normal versus the ones who just no longer saw their owner. Um, and I think that is kind of uh, scary. The Garveys are an amazing uh, unit. And I never thought about them being a family that was spared and not having anyone lost, but they are completely devastatingly alone now. There's no communication. And you're right. The camera, once you rewatch it, there's a lot of good connections that Kevin and this woman and the guilty remnant are related. You have a great scene in the first half of the episode where he's looking in a mirror and then the camera cuts to a woman who's also supposed to looking in a mirror, but it's Lori looking at the guilty remnant. Uh, and it says, we are the living reminder. So they don't have any mirrors. Some really cool things to look for on a second watching of the pilot. Kevin Garvey's a mess and he didn't lose anyone besides his, his mistress. Well, I, that's someone. I, I kind of agree with you. Him feeling or, or being so distraught. But without losing anyone, and then you can juxtapose that with the character of Nora Durst, who loses everyone, but is somehow able to give this compassionate and composed speech. I thought that was just an amazing way to kind of cap off the episode before the ensuing chaos. But yeah, Kevin hasn't lost anyone, but what he has lost is not because of sudden departure, it's because of his actions. You're absolutely right, you got that 
you know, 100% from the pilot. He was unfaithful. He probably took his family for granted. Probably took his his life and status and the, again, normalcy of it for granted until it was taken away. One last comment. I, I know I have I have some family members that are law enforcement. And so I couldn't help but notice, like, Kevin Garvey is making police look absolutely terrible. And I could see that being a low point. So that's, that's my last comment on Kevin Garvey. I didn't really think about too much of that, but uh, I, again, I did mention that the uniform is important. I don't, I don't personally look at Kevin Garvey as a perfect example of uh, a police chief. I think he's a man who was thrust upon this position because his father abandoned abandoned his post, and he get, again is not really ready to have to lead this town because he can't lead, lead his own family. Let's transition to Nora Durst. Go ahead and hit us with Nora Durst, Crazy Carl. Nora Durst, well, we were talking before we got started about the suffering Olympics. And this is what we talk about in terms of people feeling that, hey, I should have a leg up or I should have a, a, a more of a bright gold star because I lost someone, you know, and you didn't. Or I went through a hardship and you didn't. And in the episode, Nora Durst kind of becomes the symbol of grief of Mapleton because unlike anybody else she's lost every single member of her family both of her children and her husband whereas other people might have lost one person or like you said a family that has lost no one she has she is the only she is the leftover and there's a funny part where she's not even in this scene but they're talking about about her and someone asks like what is she gonna say and the mayor jumps in and she says She's going to say whatever the fuck she wants. Like, <laughs> yeah. <so it's> like, <laughs> and, and that's what we're talking about. It's like, hey, I, I'm going through grief or I'm going through pain. Uh, you can't bother me. You can't you can leave me alone. You can't call me out. You can't, you know, I, you get this all the time in identity politics now. You know, I'm one of the marginalized or I'm one of the suffering. You cannot shame me for that or you cannot call me out for that. And, it, and to be clear, it's not Nora who's using that uh, narrative. It's like you said, the mayor. She has the platform to say whatever she wants because she has nothing else. So the opening scene, we haven't really talked about that, but I think it compares. Carl had mentioned that he liked that scene be- before we had watched it. But I feel like the opening scene was kind of intentionally emotionally manipulative, like in like it comes off a bit too much. It's like, I, I know what you're doing. Where Nora's Nora Durst's speech, hers, I think is has the same intentions, but it's executed a lot better. Like I feel for Nora Durst a lot more than like some lady that's doing laundry that I don't know. I 100% have to agree. I think maybe if the showrunners or the creators or even directors would have showed us the scene that Nora was mentioning in her speech about having a wonderful day at the beach or having a day where her children were all sick in bed. And then seeing her later on in the episode, we were kind of like, wow, she really did lose all that amazingness in her life. You you said it pretty accurately. It is a little emotional manipulative to show the woman that way, but I think it's just a great, almost like a mini trailer before the title card. It just lets you know that hey, this is where we are, and this is what. I agree. It's it's an effective opening. It works. It, it gets you in the story really quick, but I don't think it has the punch that they wanted that that Nora's speech, like Nora Durst's speech, hit hit me. the The opening scene, I'm just like, uh, like I know what you're doing, and yeah, it did. It just didn't hit me. I think that Nora's speech was the most natural emotional moment of the pilot and definitely not what we saw with that woman. And th- thinking about just empty calories or empty minutes of the pilot, 
that woman doesn't really come much come back much more or even in the show Nora becomes a focal point of this series. She is one of everyone's. She's a fan favorite. It really is a throwaway scene, which hurts it a little more as well. I agree. She, the woman who loses her baby, who's kind of like clearly annoyed that her child is crying incessantly. She runs into Chief Garvey at the end of the pilot. Just to bring up that they both lost people. And yeah, it, it doesn't really hold that much weight. I thought her character was a little bit of a dumb. Nora's speech is all about like, a good day versus a bad day. And so Carl has a couple questions. You can either ask them or just roll with them. I mean, I, I thought the speech was really powerful. She compares the specialness of having a perfect day with her family at the beach and the sun was great and they had, you know, there was laughter and whatever. And then she talks about another day where it was a Saturday where everyone in the family was sick. And she says that, you know, I wouldn't even want to be selfish. I'm not asking for a lot. I don't want to have that perfect day again. I would just take the bad days. And as I've gotten a little bit older, I think about the idea of being grateful and being, you know, appreciative. And I ask the question, how do you quantify what a good or bad day is? Is it what you do? The time you spend with people? The amount of money you spend? I I think this is something we have to kind of really think about. Um, The older we get, the more time we spend with people and back to wasted minute. Yeah, there's there's a fun little story. I guess it's uh anyways, it, it's called Heaven and Hell and it's about a samurai and the point of the story is and I will add that to the petardar, but the point of the story is you create your own heaven and hell. And so like that's that's kind of what comes to mind. I'm not necessarily saying that that's true, but you know, you have all these different characters and this show kind of focuses on the ones that are creating their own hell. And there's probably some ones out there that are maybe like looking at what they do have and what they do have left instead of considering like a leftover. And so, yeah, it's interesting what, what the, what this show decides to focus on at least. I appreciate you bringing that up. I've never heard of that uh, source material. There was a book you said, or it's a very short story. I'm not, it's not quite a fable because there's no animals, but it's almost like, imagine what's a fable with, with humor. Yeah. Folklore. Folklore. I guess it's a folklore. Either way, the point about being between heaven and hell, it makes me think of the Oscar Wilde quote that we are all our own devils and we make this world our hell. That's something that I've always kind of thought about from once I first heard that idea. And it's we all a lot of times are responsible for the predicaments and patterns that we find ourselves in. Of course, with a sudden departure, there was nothing that could be done. And I don't think that Nora feels guilty about her, fa- her family being gone. Again, she's just having to process and, and deal with uh and deal with the loss. Yeah, I, I was more referencing like what makes a good or bad day. As far as like we can create like a good or bad day, I'm not taking away people's suffering, but right. like each day we wake up, and I think our outlook at least impacts that day a bit, if not a lot. Absolutely, it's like the you know the corny uh, altitude or attitude affects altitude. You know the positive thinking or life is. You know, 90% what happens to you, 10% is how you think about it or, or, or wherever you can move on. I think in terms of having good or bad days, in my mind, it really is how you can also remember these things. Because you might have had a really crappy time in high school. But again, as we get older, we know that the power of nostalgia really bears on us. The days that you were crying and miserable and teenage and, you know, in your feelings. And now you're like, oh. I want to go back. The music was great and my friends were great. So I think the power of good and bad days can also just be in the time that we get away from. 
Nice. I like that. So I have one more way less deep literary analysis and then, and then we'll move into our part three. This is an extremely white show. This, this could have been a low point. Uh, Drew is not going to like this many pretty white people (laughs) on, on one set. The mayor in this extremely pretty white town is black. And just as like a realist, like how does this black woman get elected by all these white people? (laughs) Uh, yeah, just for the viewers, Crazy Carl is a is a black guy. I never thought about that until reading your notes. It's it's an interesting point. It's very valid that Mapleton, New York, is supposed to be some kind of like upstate New York area. Uh, and her being the mayor, I also found that kind of confusing because in the pilot, I think you see maybe less than four people of color, and then you have Holy Wayne being the uh being the other main character who is of color and. Sometimes I think that trope of like being special, uh, it does get played out a little bit. But I thought the mayor, from my reading, it was just kind of normal and blended. Maybe she just stepped up to the position. No one else wanted to run this town. Carl can say whether they established that or not. I just, I mean, I, I just couldn't help but notice all these pretty white people. And then, like, like I like the mayor. There's, there's some some problems that that Carl had mentioned off mic uh, that we don't really have time for now. But um. Yes, yeah, so you so you can watch that and, and make up your own mind. Yeah, I didn't think the people of Mapleton were that pretty, but <laughs> I'm glad I'm, I'm glad uh, you found them to be handsome. I think yeah, Kevin Garvey is obviously a very like you said before a pretty boy um, police officer, but it, it didn't really stick out to me that much. I think if you continue watching the series, there will be more interesting things that happen with color and, and, and I don't want to say discrimination, but how people of color are treated, especially if you get to the season two. With the family they meet as a as a black family, yeah. I mean, Tom is good looking. Um, Jill is oh, good yeah. looking. Yeah, Kevin is good looking. Jill's friend is good looking. <laughs> the people at the party are good looking. I mean, okay. I, I I was thinking about <laughs> in my mind when I think of Mapleton, I was thinking about the guilty remnant. I'm just thinking the about guilty that. reverend are very ugly. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking of. But yeah, he's absolutely right. Jill's friend is gorgeous. I mean, Jill is you know has the pixie dream girl where i'm like depressed but but she's also attractive as well and even laurie you can tell that she was a beautiful woman you can tell that the family looked great in family portraits and there's also a nice scene in family portraits where kevin smashes uh laurie's face in, in the in all right so that on that note that transitions perfect to our part three we're going to jump outside of the pilot to the stage our stormy daniel's dangling threads of interest we have no stormy news. I will text Drew and I'll get us some stormy news next week. My first one that I want to dive into is why 2%. I did listen to an interview with the author and he talked a little bit about like why he chose a rapture type, even though in the book, like he specifically never gives any evidence that it is or isn't the rapture. He just wants the viewers to kind of decide, but but to me, it brings an interesting, like, why 2%? That, that's not that significant. I mean, they even mention it in the show. It's not a significant population. Society assumes to function well afterwards. So my second part of that question is, at what percent does society collapse and fall? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? Is it 50%? I mean, like, it's not, like how much people have to dis- – how many random people have to disappear before, like, society – goes post-apocalyptic why two percent i don't know but i love the question of 
at what point do we as a society, at what threshold do we kind of lose our minds? You know, you have series like The Purge. You have things that are going on in the real world where there's like scamming all the time. And you do think at what point will our society kind of collapse on itself? And again, where people are not able to trust each other, trust their own personal motivations. Um, I thought that was more interesting that, yeah, the people left behind might not be as good afterwards. Yeah, I mean, well, trust trust is huge. I mean, like the economy, as far as money and currencies, can't function without trust. A hundred dollar bill is absolutely worthless if you don't trust the U.S. dollar. How many people have to disappear before we start like fighting with with guns and knives over property and over resources? We don't have another you know country or planet to to run a, a blind study on that. But uh, I'm just gonna say like ten percent. I think I I think one out of ten is a significant enough where everyone is going to be significantly impacted and maybe enough things are opening up, like enough big positions are going to be lost where people are going to fight over positions in like government, especially corporations. So I think a number like 10% would probably, maybe even less would be my guess. I, I mean, this stuff is, is fascinating. I can't, again, speak too much about the numbers, but I agree with what you're saying that we do have to have some kind of checks and balances. And I had that in one of my dangling threads as well, is how if you're so tied to one thing and you make that a part of your identity, then what happens when that thing is no longer there? You could even take what happened with sudden departure, because remember, that was all at once and in, in one moment. But I would say that there are small travesties that happen all the time around the world. And you could ask the same question. At what point? How many children have to be detained for people to, you know, say something? How many unarmed minority people have to be attacked for this to uh, matter? How many police also have to be attacked for something to matter? It's the same kind of question. And I think the show subtly talks about cognitive dissonance. Most people really don't care unless it happens to them. And that's why you do have, again, the Nora Durst argument of she suffered more, she lost more people. I, I I think your point is great. Yeah, what has to happen for people to kind of finally wake up about something? But I think the people who live on the outskirts and, and the marginalized groups have always asked that. At what point will they finally take our pain seriously? And this kind of maybe ties back into trust too. I, I know, especially with, with, with my friends and family back home, a lot of times they'll make a comment about someone or, or a certain type of people. And I'll usually respond with like, well, how many people do you know that that fit that? And yeah. a lot of times it's like one or none. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so this really big problem that you're complaining about and you don't actually know anyone that fits into that problem. Like the flip side is interesting as well. Like, yeah, so even with a small number like 2%, like imagine, imagine any social issue that you care about. Imagine if 2% of the U.S. was affected by that. Like that would create huge problems. And I was going to bring up, I hate to get super political, but these things just, they call to mind in conversations like this. People who worked for the government not being able to get paid. That was becoming a huge political and just news story. It's like, well, how long is this going to matter? And then the longer that issue remained, well, if this keeps happening and they don't work for this many months, then this will be affected. And then if it doesn't happen for a year, then this will happen. And again, it goes back to cognitive dissonance. Until that radar, that threshold hits you, most people would rather just ignore it. They'd rather be like Meg's fiance and just sing and, and plan a wedding than really address the issue that, hey, 
2% of whatever is being affected here. Agreed. And guilty. We all are. I mean, <laughs> we, we, we can't occupy our brains with all these issues all the time. I mean, it would we we would be guilty. You know, we would feel guilty. It would be like the guilty rem- remnant, you know, a constant reminder of all the things that we try our best to block out. Because when we're at the beach, we're not thinking about the wars and atrocities or even the lost dog that won't go home. You don't think about any of much. You're so enjoying life. And these characters don't enjoy anything. There's a fun thought experiment by Peter Singer. And it's, it's like if a, if a child was drowning in a pond, would you go in, like, would you ruin your, your clothes and your shoes to go save the child's life? And like almost everybody says yes, even though your shoes cost like 50 to $100 and your suit and your pants, like your outfit costs like two to $300. And then so his thought experiment is he flips that. He's like, well, right now you could spend $300 to save a child in Asia or Africa's life. And you know what? We don't do it. We go out and we buy shoes and we buy clothes we don't need and we buy technology that we already have and we buy all these things and guilty. Um, I do these things as well. It doesn't affect us and we easily forget and, and don't care. Again, it's a process as you as you grow and are able to think about your placement on the planet, what you're leaving behind, you know, even when you're not here, your your carbon footprint and all these different things. I, I think just the idea that we're even talking about it, it does matter. And progress is slow. I do think it's interesting that they started the show three years later mm-hmm. and not, you know, one year or two years or whatever. I just thought three years was like, right, maybe that's how much processing time society needed. To, to get back to a level of normal. I really liked that they did start three years later. I think that's a great choice. Hmm. This is going to wrap up today's episode on The Leftovers. And if you're still listening, then that means you owe us for this ad-free entertainment. Remember, you can repay your debt by doing one of three things. Go leave us an iTunes review, listen to more episodes, or tell someone else about our podcast. Next week... We will have Drew and Liz joining us for Doom Patrol. Stay tuned for more episodes from Season 2. As always, give us any and all feedback. I would appreciate it. Go to the Facebook page or the website to continue any or all of the conversations. We'd like to thank Jake Drew for the intro and outro music. You can follow us on any of those links you see in the show notes. Every day we hoist Jimbo out. <laughs>